Father God, um, in the midst of all the things that are thrown at us in this life, all the busyness that we feel, all the stress, all the anxiety um, from relationships, from scheduling, from work that we have to get done, from performances that are upon us. Uh, Lord, uh, may we see the reason that we do it all. Uh, may your gospel illuminate our relationships, our tasks, our schoolwork, our performances. Um, Lord, uh, may we do it. Um, may we do our activities. May we do life with you in mind. Uh, and may we shine that light to others that we interact with in your son's name. Amen. So this story that I'm about to tell you was first told by a pastor named David Rigg. And it's the story of Hannah and Michael finding what was lost. Let me tell you what happened to a guy named Ted Forbes, Ted Forbes, back in 1984. While walking down the street in Chicago, Ted found a wallet. Being an honest Christian man, he wanted to return it to its owner, so he opened it to look for some identification. The wallet contained a total of $3. No driver's license, no social security card, no pictures, nothing to indicate who owned the billfold. Looking through the wallet a little more, Ted found an old envelope. It was wrinkled, and it looked as like it had been carried there for years. The only part of the writing on the envelope that he could read was the return address. To find more information, Ted opened the envelope, and to his surprise, the letter was dated June 6, 1924. The letter had been written nearly 60 years prior to this day. It was a Dear John letter, and it was written to a man named Michael. It was from a woman named Hannah. She explained that she loved him, and she would always love him. Her parents had forbidden her to see him anymore. Ted Forbes wanted to locate the owner of the lost wallet, so he drove to the location listed on the return address. He parked the car and walked up to the door. The woman answered the door. Ted asked if the lady, if, the lady, if she knew a Michael or a Hannah. He was told that, that 30 years ago she had purchased the home from a family whose daughter was named Hannah. She said Hannah had placed her mother in a nursing home just a few blocks down the street. Ted drove to the nursing home. He explained the story to the nursing supervisor. She told Ted that the lady was trying... That he was trying to find a died. However, she gave him a telephone number where he might locate Hannah. Calling that number, he learned that Hannah was not living there anymore. The person answering the phone said Hannah was now in an apartment house for the elderly. Ted began to wonder why he was making such a big deal for an old lost wallet, which contained $3 in a crumpled old letter. But he decided to keep looking until he ran into a dead end. He finally tracked down Hannah and went to visit her at an elderly apartment house. She had an apartment on the third floor. Ted knocked on the door. A gray-haired, alert, bright-eyed lady with a warm smile on her face answered the door. Yes, it was Hannah Marshall. Ted told her about finding the wallet and showing her the letter, asked if she knew someone named Michael. Hannah took the letter. Tears filled her eyes. She told Ted that the letter was the last contact she had had with Michael. She said that she had never married because she never met anyone she loved as much as Michael. Then she asked Ted if, when he found Michael... He would tell him she still loved him and that she thought about him every day. Ted thanked her and left, and he was walking down the apartment house hallway. He was carrying the wallet in his hand. The janitor saw the wallet and stopped Ted in the hallway. Let me see that wallet. Ted handed him the wallet. Why, that's Mr. Goldstein's wallet. I know it anywhere. He's always losing it. Ted asked where he could find the Mr. Goldstein. The janitor said he lived in the sixth, uh, apartment 6 on the 8th floor of that very same building. So Ted quickly made his way to the 8th floor. He found apartment 6 and knocked on the door. Sure enough, the old man named Michael answered the door. Ted showed the wallet to the old man. He asked if it was his. Yes, it is his. It was. 
Ted admitted reading the letter to seek identification of the owner. Mr. Goldstein asked, you read it? Then he told Ted that his life nearly ended many years ago when he lost Hannah. He'd never married, and he never stopped loving her. Then Ted said, Mr. Goldstein, I think I know where Hannah is. The old man became very excited. Ted simply took him by the hand, led him to the elevator, down to the third floor to Hannah Marshall's apartment door. When she opened the door, they looked at one another in disbelief. Michael Goldstein walked slowly to Hannah. He took her in his arms, and a 60-year-old, 60-year separation evaporated in the warp of their love. About three weeks later, after Michael and Hannah were reunited, Ted got a call asking him to be their best man. They were remarried after years of separation. It must have been a sight, a 79-year-old man and a 76-year-old woman acting like teenagers. A perfect ending to a tragic separation. They had every reason to celebrate. Those are always the best stories, right? Lost love. Lost family. Think about it. All the great epics in history contain some sort of lost and found. Odysseus. As he tries to find his way home to his family and as he is lost at sea. Romeo and Juliet, as their love was lost to the war that raged between the two families. One of my favorite stories when I was a child was the movie Homeward Bound. It's the story of three lost animals, two dogs and a cat, and they go on an adventure to find their way home. Star Wars ends up being the story of a man who falls into darkness and loses his family. Only to find out that he has a son and a daughter at the end of his life and makes things right. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they are trying to find a way home. Trying to find Christmas again. Then trying to find summer. In the movie Tangled, Rapunzel ends up finding her lost family. In the Lego movie, they are trying to find the special who is there to save them all. Those stories resonate with us. That's why that motif follows you throughout literature and every sort of genre, every sort of um, story type, whether it's film or book or radio or sitting around a campfire. These stories resonate with us, I think, because at one time in our lives, we have all felt like we've lost something. And many of us have lost something, whether it's a friend, family member, home, security, patience, or love, loss could very much define us. And there is such joy in finding the thing you seek most, isn't it? Not? Finding love, finding fulfillment, finding a God who all along has been seeking after you. Today, we're going to touch upon two parables about the lost, both in chapter 15. I had planned to do all three, so in chapter 15, there is the sheep, the coin, and the sun. They're all kind of grouped together. And I had originally set out on Monday to do all three, but there was so much stuff in one and two that I felt like, let's just focus on there, because you've all heard me preach on the prodigal son probably two, three times. Anyways, I'm going to touch on the prodigal son a little, so I'm going to mention them briefly, but I won't spend too much time on them. Like any good story, the parables are set up in the first two verses of chapter 15. So let's read those together. Again, it's chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors... And sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? That's the grumbling man I always turn into when I read my children the book. There's that grumbling guy. 
There are two types of people in the opening of the story, and I want you to be aware of them. Because Jesus is talking to two different types of people in the same setting. One of the things any good speech class will teach you is the phrase, know your audience. And it can be very difficult to speak to different people who are from different parts of society. But one way to overcome it is to use stories. Because there are many ways you can hear a story. Because we naturally put ourselves in it. So one question we will ask for both these sections, both these parables and these two questions, if you want to use these as notes for your um, yakshi. One is, how did the Pharisees and scribes hear the story? How did the Pharisees and scribes hear the story? And two, how did the tax collectors and sinners hear the story? Think about it. We've got to ask that question if we're going to dive into parables. We have to know what audience is Jesus talking to? Who is he speaking to? So keep that in mind as we read the two parables. But before I dive into the two parables, I want you to know the difference between the two groups. And how do we see these groups today? Because we don't see parable, we don't see Pharisees and scribes and, and tax collectors typically walking around and interacting. So, what is the difference between those who work for the IRS and the clergy? Are they destined to not get along? Are they like werewolves and vampires, pirates and ninjas? Are they constantly at war with one another? The Pharisees and the scribes in the story are those who live moral lives. They are put together. Their lives are in order. They disdain disorder. And I think that's even a less powerful word. They disdain disorder. They don't associate with anyone who might be screwed up. And if they have to... They make sure that they don't have to again. And they go through a ritual cleansing, just in case they have. The scribes are teachers of the law. They know the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, inside and out. And like the Pharisees, they wouldn't be caught dead, eating and mingling with the likes that this Jesus guy is interacting with. The tax collectors, they're swindlers. Everyone knows it. They take more money than they're supposed to and cheat others out of their hard-earned <coughs> money. Remember, Andrew, taxation is theft. It's an inside joke. Sorry, everyone. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus actually calls a short tax collector out of a tree and chooses to eat at his house in front of everyone. Anytime someone tells you that Jesus might not like rich people, ask them why he hung out with tax, collect- tax collectors. He didn't have anything to do with their social economic status. They were still poor, according to Jesus. Remember how we spent so much time in early Luke defining poverty. Poverty, to Dr. Luke, was those who were missing something, not those who were economically disenfranchised. But he didn't judge them for it. Jesus called those tax collectors out of it. And then we have the sinners. Who are they? Well, exactly what we called them. Sinners. So who in your mind's eye of this group are the sinners in this passage? The prostitute? The pimp? The homosexual? The adulterer? The abuser? The thief? The gossip? Who are you putting in your mind's eye in this section? And why is Jesus 
Hanging out with them. Well, let's find out. Verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So let me remind you all of first century shepherding practices. I know it's a, I know it's a, you know, practice that most of you are very familiar with. Now, today, if you have sheep, goats, cows, pasture animals, what do we do? We put them behind large fences. Okay? Because then they can't get out. True story. Fences. Okay? They go about their business. We go about our business. Why? Well, the fence. These animals are dumb. It just takes a couple of sticks, and they aren't getting around it. Back then, shepherds moved through the countryside with their flocks, depending on where the grass and the food was tallest. And because they didn't have a fence, they had to make sure that their sheep, in this instance, didn't wander off. Further, sheep are dumb. They are stupid. D-U-M dumb. That doesn't spell dumb, by the way. <laughs> they are dumb. They they get lost, and well, it can get it can get pretty bad pretty quickly. They easily injure themselves and they can get trapped. Like in a corner. What do I do? Where do I go? What do I do? I'm serious. Dumb. So when a sheep would get lost, the shepherd would try to go find it and bring it home. Most of you have seen, you know, really nice paintings of a little shepherd boy. He's got curly hair, blonde, flowing in the wind. It's kind of like Ian's, okay? And he's carrying this baby lamb. Kick dancing on the golden road the whole way home. And that's this idea you have of, like, the shepherd bringing back the sheep, the baby lamb. That is a rather new invention. If you look at this passage illustrated in the early church, it's of this old grizzly dude carrying this, like, think about it. This is a sheep, a clearly full sheep, because he's, like, not been fenced in. He can just eat until his heart's content. Carrying a 100-pound animal on his shoulders, bruised and bloodied, back to the flock. That's the picture that is really needs to be grasped here. Um, so how do you think the sinners saw the story? They loved it. They knew they had been living a life very differently from the herd. They were, for lack of a better term, and probably an ironically good term, the black sheep of their culture. They were frowned upon. No one hung out with them. They knew they had been living a very different life, and the shepherd comes to bring them back. They love the stories. The Pharisees, on the other hand, this is what they're thinking. It's just one sheep, dude. 
that's like 99 out of 100. That's still an A on a test, okay? Like, why are we fretting over that one? Like, I know we're dumb sheep, but that one? That one's not worth your time. And what? Look, we were good sheep. We stayed together. We were like, hey, man. Uh, uh. And we, we were like talking. And this, this one wandered off on his own. He didn't pick his head up for a moment to take a view of where did everyone go. What are you doing? And you're going to rejoice over that one? That one? You're not the smart one. This idea of heaven rejoicing over that type of creature is ridiculous. Which seems to be the case in all three of the parables. In the sheep parable, it's one out of every hundred sheep. In the coring parable, it's one out of every ten. In the sun parable, it's one out of two. He keeps getting more of the majority. Who, in this case, the sinners, the black sheep. But the sheep and the herd had followed directions. They knew their catechism and their Bible. They aren't fools like that one sheep who wandered off. I mean, what a fool. You know what he did that to himself. It was the sheep's decision to get lost. Pick up your head, men, and look around for once in a while. And we do that. We do that, don't we? The people who wander off and make dumb decisions, that's immediately what we think. What an idiot. I can't believe X person did that. Of course they should be in trouble with everybody. They're an idiot. Yeah, they don't deserve to get their friends back after what they pulled. We do this all the time. Well, who does Jesus, a.k.a. the shepherd, throw a party over? Him. That sheep. And about the other 99? Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So why don't you call your friends together and let them know, hey, most of my sheep aren't dumb. They follow your law. Of course, that would be the reaction of the Pharisees, the moral majority. We ignore the preciousness in those who make poor choices. We mock them, put them in categories, call them sinners, but we don't plead for their return. Do we? Those who make poor decisions, we just put them in a category. We call them a name. We give them a label. We don't hope for them to come home. Who is your black sheep? The one who doesn't deserve a savior to find them. Who is the black sheep in your life that doesn't deserve a savior to find them? Jesus continues the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now again, we don't quite understand first century homes or economics, so let's review history. If you lose a coin today, you turn on a vacuum and poke and slide it around the house until you hear clink, 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 clink. And that's what you do, right? And a coin for you is, well, under a dollar. Which is about one-ninth of an hour's wages. 
A coin in those days was probably a day's wages. A whole day's wages. So it is a substantial sum for this woman. And when she lost the coin, she had to comb through her house. Floors at this point in history were made of stone, stone floors. Which means they had many cracks where some of the areas had come apart. Now imagine looking for that coin at night with a lamp, walking around to every crevice in the home, poking around, trying to see if the coin had fallen in. Remember, windows in this day are for wind. Windows. It was originally for air circulation. It wasn't like Texas where we were like, we need big windows to the light in, to beautify the room. No, that wasn't the point. They just needed windows to let wind, wind. Aha, I know, some of you are like, I never knew. Never knew. Yeah, mind blown. Okay? Windows was originally an English word for a spot that lets in the breeze. Wow. It takes some time, and I might add a little bit of luck, and of course she would be happy, right? She found the coin. It's going to take some time. Hand, knees, stone, floor. No light coming in from the window. She's got a lamp. And it's not like one of your flashlights at Boy Scouts. It's like, I spill the oil on the ground, I potentially light myself on fire. Those type of lamps. And she's looking at little crevices, trying to make sure that she didn't miss something. Again, the focus of the story is how heaven reacts when a sinner repents. The sinners get it. The hope is that the Pharisees' hearts are changed and that the view of the sinner as valuable. That's the hope of the story. Is that Jesus is like, I hope the Pharisees' heart changes and they view these people as valuable. Do you view sinners as valuable or do you simply not make time for them? This is one of your fill in the blanks. I think much of the church is so focused on determining who is us and who is them that we miss out. We, We miss how to reach out. Who is us and who is them that we miss how to reach out. We love categories. We love them. We love putting people in categories. Because then we know everything about them, right? Well, I've put you in a category. You're the nerd. Or you're the jock. Or you're the thespian. Or you're the scient. We love Love categories. Because the moment we put you in a category, we've not only know the cover, but we've written the book about you too. Alone. And we only want the right kinds of kids to show up at youth group. We only want the right types of young families. But if any of us list, but if any of the list I had at the beginning, the prostitutes, the pimps, the homosexuals, etc., show up at our church, are we more likely to act like Jesus and invite them to dinner? Or are we more likely to treat them like the Pharisees treated the tax collectors? How are we more likely to treat those people as they walk in our building? I would contend, and this includes myself, that I am much more concerned at times about losing the stuff around me that God's were not reaching the people around me. I'm much more concerned about my stuff than I am about God's people. And that's where these Pharisees were at. They were much more concerned with their stuff 
and their reputation than they were people. I'm going to end with this story. Jason Bonnick son tells the story of his family on ski vacation. He says this, our tummies rumbled. It was time for lunch. What do you say we head in? I asked. As the girls strapped in, we careened down the mountain and caught the chairlift. My baby and I rode on one chair, behind her two older sisters and another. The view ahead would make a great shot, I thought. I pulled out my daughter's camera, snapped a few uh, pictures. As I did, my daughter said, Ah, Dad. And while pointing ahead to the summit, coming quickly into view, I frantically unzipped my ski jacket and slid the camera in. Woo, that was close. Because they they almost got to the point where they had to jump off the ski lift. We went inside and took off our gear, but then I noticed it. The camera was missing. We searched anxiously. Nevertheless, the camera was gone. I was disappointed and heard from my daughter. I was her camera. I lost her memories. God, in your mercy, please help us find what was lost, I pray. Just when hope waned, a man approached us and asked, Did you lose a camera? You can imagine our joy and relief. Yes, thank you, we responded. As I woofed down my lunch, Jesus' parable of the lost coin came to mind. Isn't it ironic, I thought. We frantically search for our missing toys, but when it comes to finding God's lost children, most of the time we just sit put. So how do we love our neighbors more? And how do we love Jesus more? Who are we treating like things, and who are we treating like people? That's what we're going to cover in transformation groups tonight. So make sure you grab a B-I-B-L-E on your way out if you don't have one. It's the book for you.